Hello, and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek Discovery podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand, and I know that there's an awful lot to talk about in this episode, Valerie, but uh, I have to say that I hope we can be really quick about it this episode, because I need to catch a flight very soon to go on vacation, where I'll be sipping jippers on a beach. (laughs) You know, we really should have talked before recording, (laughs) because I'm Valerie Hoagland, and my joke was also about sipping jippers on the beach. (laughs) But it's not worth it at this point. I'll let you have this one. (laughs) Well, together we run a speakeasy in the Jeffrey's Tubes where we only serve jippers. (laughs) Yep, they're 100% real. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) Um, But today, uh, if you hadn't caught on, we are talking about the Short Treks episode, The Escape Artist, which features jippers being sipped on the beach. Yeah, this episode was written by Michael McMahon, who's uh, going to be the executive producer of the upcoming animated Trek TV show that has stolen its name from our podcast. And uh, the episode was directed by Rain Wilson, by by Harcourt Mudd himself. Glenn, a lot a lot of uh, famous names here. Uh, Michael McMahon is famous for his work with Rick and Morty. So uh, is that a show that you've watched? I've seen some Rick and Morty, but I've not watched very much of it. And I, I will say that the the animated TV show that they are going to call Lower Decks is meant to be uh, like a 30-minute animated comedy show. So I think this was kind of uh, an audition for that in, in some sense or a preview of it. Yeah, though, Glenn, I will have to correct you. I think we're going to have to, to work out a system here. And my suggestion is that we call our podcast Lower Decks and we call the animated comedy show The Other Lower Decks. Yeah, obviously. I'll also accept Lower Decks 2. <laughs> so this is the part where we reveal to each other whether or not we liked it. I have a feeling we're going to have a game of opposites here, as we often do. I loved it. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. And you won't be surprised to hear that I didn't love it. I didn't dislike it. I don't like funny things. You like things that are funny. I, I, I mean, I don't like things that are sad. I think you do like watching dramas um, that are emotional. That's right. I, I go to TV in order to cry. You go to it to laugh. We're just filling different different voids in our hearts, Glenn. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I, I'm going to go ahead and assume that you are unsurprised to hear that I liked this episode, not only because I like funny things, but also because I like campy things and because I, I do love all the mud episodes from Discovery Season 1 and you were less keen on them. Yeah, that's right. I was. And again, really just in large part because they were whimsical and, and meant to be funny. And I'm just kind of sitting there waiting for the ethical problem or the theological question or, you know, for something to make me cry. Yeah, and that's fine. I think both of our opinions, both of the things that we look for in Trek exist in Trek, right? You get both kinds of episodes in, in every other series that we have had. And and I am an apologist for, for the campy humor. And, and you know, Star Trek is often quite funny, especially the original series and TNG, you know, it's very whimsical and very funny. And I think it's that spirit lifted from those shows and put into Discovery that I really, really thoroughly enjoy and that I find is missing from the dense drama of, you know, what was season one of Discovery overall. And this episode was fun. There was a lot of whimsy. I mean, even just in the title sequence of this episode, the the music, the main music for Short Treks, like gives away and sort of like a... a, a record scratch moment and is replaced by some kind of disco song. I'm not sure 
like why or if that was a song I was supposed to recognize and just didn't. But it was a funny move, even just right from the start. Yeah, I loved the font of the of the title of the episode, which happens around the same time as this record scratchy disco music change and and the kind of scariness almost of the fade in and the red lettering it definitely felt very very retro reminded me for a moment of stranger things and in just in terms of like the cut and how the font was appearing and that it was red and and that nostalgia uh for for more of a vintage feel and and you know you called it disco which you know puns with star trek discovery aside like this music had a very 70s feel yeah, and I think the title card itself is also supposed to have a real 70s feel. I mean, there was a, a sort of rash of, of I don't know, comedy, heist comedy caper movies in the 1970s that I think this is going for. One of the one of the, the shticks, one of the plot devices of that type of movie is the the dialogue-driven flashback, the kind of flashback that, that contradicts what's actually being said on screen. It's just a, a, a sort of classic comedy trope of, of that type of film. And, and even much of the clothing, especially like Mud's outfit has a real 70s feel to it like he really wouldn't be out of place standing next to Han Solo in fact I think this version of Mud and Harrison Ford's Han Solo could could probably really uh, tear up a disco together I f- so I feel like you know we've been on air long enough that we have our our sticks and our tropes <laughs> and even before you you mentioned Harry Mudd and Han Solo in a disco together. I was already like, well, now that we said exactly what we always say about what we think of Discovery, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, let's move on to something else. Oh, the theme music, which we always talk about. And now our our classic catchphrase, I'd watch that. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. Well, I would watch that for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I, would, I would really watch it too. And and you bring up something that I was already prepped to kind of bring up was that the, the notes of Star Warsiness that do get brought to this episode, which I actually thought was quite fun, even though I'm not the world's biggest Star Wars fan. So... And I don't I don't know if Harry Mudd is either, but there were some fun references there. And I think they were playing with it in a way that I really enjoyed. Well, this certainly opens like a Star Wars story does. It's it's just opens completely in in media rest in the middle of the thing. And it's, it's a really great opening, this sort of just real zoom up on Rain Wilson's head as he's like straining and screaming. Uh, and Mudd is back. He's a prisoner. He's being sold from one bounty hunter to another. And one of these bounty hunters is a Tellarite. His, his name is Tevrin Crit. He's going to be our, our second lead of this episode. And we have seen Tellarite bounty hunters before in Star Trek. It's, it's maybe even something of a trope. And in fact, Elizabeth and I just uh, recently watched the Enterprise episode Bounty, which features Captain Archer in basically this exact same situation. I was just going to bring that up. I was about to say, you know, the fact that we have bounty hunters and their costuming is very uh, the female bounty hunter in particular that we see here um, who sells Harry to the Tellarite is very Star Wars. When you think of bounty hunter, I think one thinks of Star Wars, but we do have Trek examples and I was just about to cite the exact same episode. I think it's also worth saying that I love the Tellarite makeup. I love this iteration of the Tellarite. I think it is so well done. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, we've seen some Tellarites in the main Discovery show during the first season, but they've not really been a major feature of it. But they were compelling enough to me, even the just the few glimpses that we got, that when I was watching this Tellarite-focused episode of Enterprise, Bounty, I was ruined that they don't look like the Discovery Tellarites. They are amazing. Those tusks are way cool. This might actually be the thing that I want to cosplay as or just where to work from now on. 
I think the voice of the actor, whether that's his voice or a voice that he is putting on or something that they, you know, made kind of sound that way, the voice is really effective and evocative as a Tellerite and as like it just it goes with the makeup. Yeah, I think it must have been using some kind of uh, some kind of voice modulator, but it was it was absolutely perfect. And I think even just the the demeanor of of this character, the demeanor of Tavern Crit was was really spot on. Uh, I really I really bought this, and I liked the way that he didn't take any crap at all from Harry Mudd. I, you brought up this female bounty hunter, and you said that she had something of a Star Wars feel to you, and I. I'm not sure what species this person is supposed to be, but at first I thought that this might be an updated look for the Breen, and the Breen from Deep Space Nine are a blatant ripoff of what Princess Leia is wearing when she is dressed up as a bounty hunter in The Return of the Jedi. So you're like, you know, I think that that makes sense here that you got a Star Wars feel from her. Do you think that that's supposed to be a Breen as well, or do you have a different thought about that? I'm not sure about it. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure whether or not the character is meant to be Breen. It wouldn't surprise me. They're not a friendly bunch (laughs) from what we know of them from (laughs) Deep Space Nine. But the visual is definitely similar. And your tracing of it back to Star Wars is actually, um, I think, spot on. I completely agree. Well, I hope that means that we might actually see some some Breen or or whoever this is supposed to be, whatever species this is supposed to be in in the second season. You bring up a good point of how much of what happens in the short tracks will weave into the second season. Like, I do wonder if they're really meant to be standalone. I mean, I think Calypso aside, because it takes place so far in the future, or if, if one is meant to have seen them in order to fully and properly understand things that happen in season two. Right. I actually had a lot of questions about that with this episode. And maybe we just talk about that right now. The Previous three Short Treks episodes have all taken place on regular Discovery sets that we've seen before that just weren't in use while regular Discovery Show Season 2 is being filmed, or they were, you know, being filmed, you know, just uh, uh, 10 miles outside of the studio on the shores of Lake Ontario. But here we have new sets. So... I, and I don't believe that they made sets just for this episode, right? So we're, we're going to see this Tellarite ship again, right? That's my guess. I don't know. Don't they have like a huge budget? I don't know. How hard is it to make a set look a little bit different? I Really genuine questions. I know we have listeners who, who have worked and do work in TV. So excuse my ignorance and please help answer that question for me. But I don't think I know enough about how all that stuff works um, and how much money it costs to to say yeah well i think that's fair i certainly don't either but i believe that we will see this set again in some way so uh, that could be kind of a fun game that we play in the, the next episodes of discovery of find the thing that was the bridge of the tellerite ship yeah we'll just you know every time you see the thing that was the bridge of the tellerite ship you take a shot it's a fun game rolls right off the tongue yeah drink a jipper i think is what you have to do <laughs> See a bridge, drink a jipper. Well, all right. Should we get into the actual plot of this episode? Okay, fine. <laughs> all right. Well, Mud is monologuing about how this is all a big mistake, and his associates, and they're going to free him, and all that kind of stuff. It's a you know real real tropey, but no one is paying any attention to him, which is really quite funny. And this is Crit's ship that we're on. As we said, he is a bounty hunter, but he's not only interested in Mud 
because of the bounty that's out on him. It turns out that Mud has slept with Crit's sister and has stolen his family's sacred cudgel. And uh, there's a pretty funny bit here about what a cudgel is. And I have to say that, although I don't think this is true, while watching this episode the first time, I assumed that this was actually a bit from The Office that I just didn't remember. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure in some way it probably is. Again, I you know uh, I have watched The Office several times and I thoroughly enjoy it, but I know there are people who like watch it every day um, and are very very dedicated. So if any of our listeners uh, fall into that category, please let us know if we missed the speech that this is referencing in in The Office. But yeah, you know, Mud is a character in TOS and in in Discovery that is known for monologuing. So the fact that that's like what most of this episode is 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 very on point. That you know the main themes of Mud that he uh, is a con man and a philanderer, usually uh, actually not for for sexual gain, but to get things like this cudgel or whatever he thinks he can use to get money or earn profit or, or, or resell. But, you know, these are, these are all the main, main themes uh, of mud. And we actually get a list later on in the episode of, of everything we've seen him do so far, which I thought was quite fun. So we're really, we're on brand here. I think they really did carry the mud character pretty seamlessly from TOS into discovery and I guess before we get any further, I should say that I just think Ray Wilson nails it. Excellent performance. Oh, he's brilliant as this character. And we actually get this list really right here. Mud, Mud says that he's innocent of everything, including this cudgel business. But Crit pulls up Mud's, I guess it's a holographic wanted poster. And then we get this list of charges against him. It's, it's 30 counts of smuggling. 20 counts of attempted homicide. And I found this interesting because it, it, it I think, kind of transforms Mud from what I would describe as being a lovable scoundrel of the original series and, and really makes him uh, maybe just an articulate sociopath. Though I guess we already knew that after watching him murder Lorca a uh, hundred times in the first season of Discovery. <laughs> I like how you say that so casually. Like, I didn't think of him as a murderous sociopath, except for that time I watched murder someone over <laughs> over for 45 minutes. Yeah, but but I think you do. I'll, I'll let you finish the, the list, but you make an important point, which is that he is charming. And one forgets how cruel he actually is because of that charm, even us, because watching the episodes with him are fun, but he's a deeply problematic and violent and terrifying character. Yes, that's right. Even knowing these things about him, Rain Wilson as the actor and Mud as the character is so charming that I'm still thinking about inviting him to my next party, even though I know that's a terrible idea because he's also been charged with one count of attempted regicide. Uh, though Mud denies this, he says that the target in that case was a duke, which hardly counts as regicide, which I did think was a really great joke. I was just going to say, like, you shouldn't invite your sister to dinner and you shouldn't invite your king, I guess. Right. Um, yeah. and you shouldn't bring the family cudgel. Just a few warnings before you invite him to the party. But yeah, this Duke joke also really got me. So I, I do. I love funny, campy TV, but I don't laugh a lot at things. Like, I don't laugh out loud a lot while I'm watching shows. But I think something about this Duke joke really tapped into the weird historian parts of both of us. 
Right. I mean, it's kind of a it's kind of a Latin etymology joke, right? So of course we laughed out loud. Do you think no one else thought it was funny? And this is like, oh yeah, that Duke joke. It was great. It's just the two of us over here. Yeah, that's all right. We'll just go in the corner and high five each other. It's no problem. I mean, that's basically what this podcast is. Okay, so what else is on the list? Well, then we get a nod to this business uh, that we saw in the first season of Discovery, this business with the space whale. Uh, again, pretty funny. I'm I'm not one for this kind of humor. Um, I mean, it was, you know, a sex joke. He's charged with, I believe, a count of uh, penetrating a whale, which is obviously meant to be a double entendre. And... I this humor is everywhere in in TOS. A lot of people enjoy this kind of humor. It's not my favorite. I think I don't know if I'm just old fashioned or prudish or something in in this particular way. But I don't I just don't find jokes like that that funny. But I did like remembering the space whale. Yeah, it's fine. You you prefer your Star Trek characters to be swimming with whales uh, wherever possible. Yeah, yeah. Save the whales. <laughs> Well, Mud tries to talk Crit into letting him go so that they can team up to go find this sacred cudgel. And and this conversation then leads to our first of, of three flashbacks to other times that Mud has been held captive. And the, the first flashback, the one that we get here, um, is Mud as a prisoner of the Klingons. And presumably this is just prior to the first time that we see him on Discovery. Yeah, no, I think that the timeline makes sense, though this isn't a Klingon that we know. Um, and. It's not Lorel and it's not Voke unless they've, you know, altered him again back into a Klingon that doesn't look like Voke. So who knows? Maybe we'll see this person in, in season two. But I think, you know, it's it's probably not a memorable character. Yeah, probably not. But this just visually reinforces what we just heard uh read to us about the this with the business with the space whale which is that we know definitively that this is taking place after the first season of discovery and so so that's helpful but we come out of this flashback where we're back on crit's ship crit goes to warp and mud says that well now he does actually remember crit's sister and he says that he had a great time with her and so he took crit's cudgel as a memento but then he sold it But he only sold it because they were low on funds. And the they here is the resistance to the Federation, which is something that he's just making up here on the spot. There is no resistance to the Federation. But he does make, I think, a really great, really interesting speech about the sort of uh, villainous, I don't know, kind of uh, oppressive uh, nature or hegemonic desires of the Federation, which is kind of a, a scoundrelly a parallel or even a scoundrelly kind of mockery of the speech by Takuvma that opens up Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, and it's also something we've seen come out of Mud's mouth before. He he does not like the Federation. Um, and in his attempt to manipulate people for his own gain, he he has proposed these themes of the Federation is oppressing people. You know, you're being oppressed. Let me help you. Um, so this is definitely, again, on brand for him. And it was an interesting theme that, that he picked back up. But, you know, this was actually the first moment where I realized we were making Star Wars jokes. Because when someone says the resistance, that is kind of my first thought when we're in space. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. And in fact, I was a little bit surprised he didn't say he didn't start talking about the rebellion. Right. They could. I, they, I don't know. Maybe that word's like copyrighted in space or something. They can't do that. Who knows? But I, I, it was clear to me that that's what they were referencing. And that's what turned me on to these little jokes that were being made there. And that let me kind of read backwards into the episode and forwards into the episode that that these jokes were were happening. So I guess we're getting like a 70s heist movie meets Star Trek meets funny Star Wars. And honestly, I love it. Well, something else that we get in this bit of the, the show in this scene is that Mud is kind of a racist jerk, right? When he's describing his relationship with Crit's sister, uh, he makes fun of Tellarite physiology, right? He, he just makes fun of their tusks and, and also the fact that Tellarite women have facial hair. And he's going to do this a few more times as well. In fact, he's going to do this every time he's on screen with a, a non-human character in this episode. Yeah. And, you know, I think it taps back into what I don't like about the space whale joke is that it it has an air of problematic misogyny um, to me based on just kind of like in general who's telling those jokes and who is being made fun of in those kinds of jokes. And to see that again here not only reinforces this misogynistic part of him, which we know exists from the TOS episodes and a thousand other things that we've seen him in, but also reinforces this idea that he's not in it because he is a philanderer, right? He's not sleeping with this person's sister because he really enjoys sleeping with his person's sister. He wants the cudgel and he wants to sell it and he wants his own profit, right? Like every creature, every sentient being that he comes across is a tool for his own gain. Right, and it's not even just that he didn't really care about the sister. It's in fact that it kind of disgusted him to sleep with her and disgusted him because she's physiologically different because she's not a human. It all did make me a little bit uncomfortable, but I think it fits with his character. And something that Harry Mudd has been being used for in Discovery that I do quite like is to show that not all humans are on board with the progressive egalitarianism of the Federation. And I think that's going to make for a a sort of a a richer tapestry of what the Federation is like and a a kind of complexity of, of, of overlapping value systems that I hope will get explored kind of beyond the the realm of of jokes and be outside of Harry Mudd's character in the next season. Yeah, there's a one-to-one with not liking the Federation very much and not adhering to um, what we might consider its more enlightened values. And so, you know, he uses that to his advantage at at every turn. Uh, But it is really a part of, of his ethos. Yeah. And, you know, Glenn, you didn't mention it, but what we're seeing here with this first flashback and we see repeated with other flashbacks in the rest of the episode is the duplicitousness of of Mud's character. I think that Mud is such a good actor, such a charming guy, and Rain Wilson portrays this character and, and acts so well that even though we know Mud is probably lying, he's still monologuing in quite a convincing way, even though Crit is not buying it and kind of in our hearts we know not to buy it. Part of us is pulled in a little bit, but through these flashbacks, we see him delivering the exact same speech in another situation where he was held captive. Um, so, you know, this is it's all very rehearsed. It's all very practiced. It's all very insincere. And we get to directly see that on screen. And I really enjoyed it. It was a fun way to see other binds that Mud has gotten himself into. It was a fun way to meet other aliens. And it proved that he's a duplicitous character and we ought not to believe what he's saying, which made Crit's rejection of his monologues 
all the better. I think we were more on Crit's side when he would deny him because we knew he was lying. Right. And every character that we're going to encounter in these flashbacks is on to Harry Mudd and is not putting up with him isn't isn't it's not working on them and in fact we should just maybe jump into the second flashback now where mud is the the prisoner of a short alien woman and i was not sure what species this character was supposed to be if she's supposed to be an updated look of some species that we already know uh, from one of the 90s shows or if this is a new introduction did you have a, a sense of what species this is yeah you know i i'm not sure she seems vaguely familiar to me and i found her extremely endearing um and i loved her her role in fighting mud's misogyny a little bit um you know he calls her weak he calls her short and she keeps uh returning his comments with an emphasis of her strength which is you know she's saying it but she's also literally displaying her strength to him and proving that uh despite appearances he is quite in the weaker position well i did like her quite a bit i, I really like that she didn't take any of mud's crap so I, I hope that this is a character that we will see again and you know you brought it up but we, i do want to emphasize here too that mud is making fun of her species physiology by constantly talking about how short she is even while he is putting romantic moves on her uh, which don't work of course and it parallels you know the story with crit sister that we were just talking about right um these kind of gross themes coming from mud continuously yeah super gross but we we come back out of this flashback we're back on crit's ship and uh crit now actually might be interested in letting mud go for a price after all he says he has heard how rich mud is but mud says that that's not true. He has no money. I mean, if he had money, he'd be sipping jippers on a beach somewhere. And <laughs> as, as we have said repeatedly already, jipper is a cocktail. And we're going we're gonna to see this come back uh, in, in the episode of Short Treks. I think it's probably going to come back here in this episode of Lower Decks as well. well. Well, Mud does also say that he used to have a fortune. He had a fortune once, but the Federation tax man took it from him. And this is really fascinating because this is the first time that we've ever, ever, ever heard about tax collection in the Federation. I am sure that the internet is already on fire about the canonicity of this statement. I wondered if you had any thoughts about this, Valerie. Well, first of all, there's no money in the Federation, right? Right. We're told this constantly, though we also see money all the time. And the currency that people are using here, these bounty hunters, and which the Federation has promised for MUD is latinum, which is the currency that uh, was really invented for Deep Space Nine, but has been kind of you know retconned into the, the rest of Star Trek. But right famously, in the one with the whales, Captain Kirk says they don't have money. You're right. There's a lot of Latinum in Deep Space Nine because the Ferengi are such prominent characters there. And so and greedy and, and certainly money and currency exists all over the the galaxy in a way that the Federation kind of can't avoid. But my kind of ideal that I do hold up is that the Federation doesn't have money. It doesn't use money um, and it doesn't need to as part of having solved the resource problem. I think I am willing to just say that mud is making stuff up to me that's the simplest solution that there is no federation tax man but that this just fit you know people hate taxes there's money elsewhere in the galaxy crit uses money i'm sure there's taxes and he hates them too and you know mud hates the federation so why not make up a lie about how they collected taxes from him right nothing else that he says is true in this episode so why would this be true 
that's my fix for that. What I do think, though, is even more interesting is the idea that the Federation would have a monetary reward attached to him. Not only because of the whole Federation money problem, but it just doesn't seem like it, it aligns with Federation values to to put a price on someone's head. Right. The the whole not using money thing that we've encountered in all, all sorts of other iterations of Trek is about money not being used as a means of exchange within the Federation because everyone's got a, a replicator, basically. So you just don't you don't need to exchange, you know, trinkets for goods and services because you can just make them all your, yourself, and it's and that's no problem. But we do see money when there are interactions with people outside of, of the Federation, even in the original series. Right, there's money at play on the sort of fringes of the Federation. And the thing with Latinum, which is being used here and is introduced in Deep Space Nine, is that it can't be replicated. That's why it is currency, and they are offering an awful lot of Latinum for Harry Mudd. So we do wonder where did the Fed. Federation get Latinum. I mean, the Federation then must be engaged in some kind of fiscal business in order to to be having, you know, have their hands on to have a treasury full of uh, of Latinum. And Crit does expect when he we do eventually get onto a Federation starship here at the end of this episode, he expects that he's going to leave that ship with hard currency with a bar of Latinum. So there's a belief by Crit and presumably by others that, or not a belief really, just an expectation that there is hard currency on board Starfleet vessels. I mean, I find all of this you know super fascinating just from the perspective of of wanting to do an institutional history of the Federation. Uh, but yeah, I'm not sure how much it really jibes with other things that we've seen on screen. Also, the fact that quote unquote, everyone in the Federation has a replicator and they don't need money is also disproven by things like when Picard goes back to see his family at their winery and they're not using replicators. Right. And one kind of wonders, what is the point of the the vineyard then, right? And how how are those grapes converted into wine? And then what is done with that wine? How is that wine... Uh, distributed to consumers. These are the the types of, you know, economic distributive systems that we we just don't see ever really at at play. They just don't they just they just don't exist. There's a hint here that that something is going on with fiscal extractions in the form of taxation. I would like to know more. I don't know if we ever will. But I think your the core of your question was, oh, does him saying this being we've now broken canon, you know, there's a whole slew of people who just already believe Discovery is not canon. Um, so I guess this is more fuel for their fire. But I think there's enough inconsistency around economics in the canon that even if Mud's not making this up, it doesn't really bother me. Right. I think that's certainly a fair and healthy approach. So we can, I don't know, leave this aside now, though. Maybe we'll get some more about this. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe the uh, maybe the core plot of the second season is actually all about taxation. I might be the only person who would be into that. So I hope that's not really true. But uh, but let's get into this this third, really, this this final flashback where Mud is now a prisoner of some Orions. And there's a, a man who's guarding him. This guy's a total dolt. Uh, and so uh, a woman takes over and then tases mud and i this is fantastic yeah what i love about the scene is one that the scantily clad woman is actually the smarter of the two and two again that we just get to see more orion men uh which i think you know is just delightful 
<laughs> well, here, Mud again, he, he can't not make jokes about Orion physiology. And even while he's like being strung up, you know, in chains from a ceiling, he puns about their green skin, you know, makes a joke about being green with envy. And of course, he also tries to put the moves on this alien woman as well. Uh, but he sa- does it by using the line, your skin is like a delectable lime, which I just don't think is likely to work out very well. And you're very interested in taxation. I want to know how lime translates, you know? It can't be that everybody has limes. (laughs) Right. Do they even have citrus fruit at all? That's what I want to know. You want to know how taxes work. I want to know if Orions know what limes are. Yeah, I think these are all valid questions. And, uh, we leave this flashback actually pretty quickly. We're back on Crit's ship, which drops out of warp at the USS DeMilo, uh, Federation starship DeMilo. Uh, what's up with this name, Valerie? I don't know. I'll be just like fully honest here in a very embarrassing way and say that the first thing that I thought of was Milo Ventimiglia, known for playing Jess on Gilmore Girls. Um, <laughs> And uh, he's in This Is Us as the the main guy. I don't know his name. And was he Peter in Heroes? He ran around without a shirt on a lot. Uh, so I, that was the first thing I thought of. So that tells you a lot about me. Um, but I don't know of any famous space DeMilos. So my only guess is that this is a reference to the Venus DeMilo. And we're just back to kind of Star Trek really loving classics. We should say that the the Venus de Milo is this beautiful ancient Greek uh, sculpture, ancient Greek statue that was found on the the Greek island of Milos. So it's from Milo. And I think that you're right, that that's what the reference is. But what that indicates, right, is that sometimes Starfleet vessels are named after uh, beautiful works of art. I don't know that we've encountered the USS Mona Lisa before, um, but maybe we will at some point. I guess that would be cool. I mean, there's a lot of Da Vinci on the holodeck in Voyager, so it's not infeasible. Right, that's true. I, I guess really I'm looking forward to meeting the USS Picasso's Blue Period or, or some ridiculous <laughs> name like that. God, Glenn, why don't they let us write this show? We'd be so good at it. Yeah, I I think I pretty well just demonstrated why they don't let us write the show. I know, I know. <laughs> well, Mud Mud has a knife in his boot, but that doesn't work out. So now he just begs, and he says that he'll even be Crit's slave so long as Crit doesn't hand him over to the Federation. Uh, this is you know sad to see, but of course we know that Mud is just conniving here. That he's just you know he's just trying to to, to stay alive from one moment to the next always certain right that he can use his cunning and his charm to to get out of it and there's a moment here too where i think this is gonna work but it doesn't and they beam over to the demilo and they are greeted by an officer who looks really bored by this whole thing yeah about the apathy of this character is is quite remarkable also kind of a cutie yeah, he's a bit of a brood hunk, I guess is what I would call him. <laughs> but the reason he is brooding, the reason he looks bored here is because he knows that mud is not actually mud, right? It's an android duplicate, thinly skinned with replicant DNA. And I really got excited at the use of the word replicant here. It's a strange term for Star Trek. Uh, there's a single Deep Space Nine episode with something exactly like what is going on here, except that it's a replica Miles O'Brien in that case. But I think the use of the word here is really kind of a joke because most people, most science fiction fans know the word replicant from Blade Runner 
which takes place in 2019. And this is the first Trek to air in 2019. So I think it was just a little little nod to Blade Runner here that I thought was funny. Yeah, no, that was super fun. And I think that, you know, the... Uh and I think that the pointedness of thinly skinned here is not lost on me. I thought that that worked really well, too, to talk about both this replicant and Mud's character. Yes, thinly skinned is a great way to describe him. All right. Well, there is on this ship, on the Demilo here, there's a whole room of these mud androids, all of them sold to people, sold to bounty hunters by the, the tall female bounty hunter that we met at the beginning. And we get some of that disco music again here with a half dozen Rain Wilsons saying jippers on a beach. And really, by the end of it, they're almost singing. And I'm pretty sure that all the kids are going to be dancing to this song by the end of the weekend i mean i'm about to release my remix so just wait for wait for that to drop um but yeah there were so many really fun details here it was campy and ridiculous like the the muds that were in that room replayed almost like it was we were watching a gif or a gif for for those who really believe we should call it a gif do not want to get yelled at on the internet but it felt you know like this loop um, of a funny image uh that i think was really effective i also loved the detail that one of these muds is missing an arm and that doesn't quite make sense at first but then you you notice that crit pulls off mud's arm um in, in a, you know, hoping he's not an android or replicant and seeing, in fact, that he is because it exposes all these wires. So you assume that this other mud lost his arm in a similar fashion. And I really just thought it was all good fun. Well, we get a, a coda now where we, we actually see Mud's ship. I have to say his ship looked very cool from the outside. Yeah, I actually like the inside, too. A little cluttered, but, you know, it's a, you need a lot of room to make that many muds. Yeah, he's got a lot of android muds in there. They're all busy working, making other android muds, it looks like, except for one of them, who is, in fact, busy making a jipper cocktail for the female bounty hunter who looks to be in charge of this ship. Except the female bounty hunter turns out, of course, to be Mud in disguise. And so this has all just been a scheme for Mud to profit from the Federation bounty that is out on him, which is a pretty clever scheme. You know, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonades, I guess. Yeah, you know, Glenn, I just want to point out that in addition to the bartender, cocktail, butler, mud that we see, there is one other hairy mud that is not making other muds. He's sweeping the floor. So I think there's an interesting point to be made here about how mud is even using versions of himself as servants to himself, right? That the the hierarchy is really that mud is at the top even of the other muds um, in the universe in his mind. But I, it's also worth pointing out here that, you know, this ties in nicely because it is not the first time we have seen Harry Mudd have experience with androids. Yes, right. He's going to graduate to basically just making android sex slaves, uh, you know, in about in about 10 years. Well, I have a, a much more important or at least more urgent question from my perspective about this scene, which is what color is the Jipper cocktail? I, I couldn't tell. Sometimes it looked violet and sometimes it looked green. I guess that was kind of depending on the light uh, of the scene. I also could not tell. I think there was an interesting um, use of shadow in this episode that all colors were kind of muted. Even, you know, like the holographic projection of his like arrest warrant or whatever was quite dark. Even the the green skin of the Orions wasn't as bright, right? Because we were in this like, we were in poorly lit dungeons for most of the episode, right? 
including his own bridge. So I think that we can't get a good read on that. But I can tell you what the color is of the Jipper cocktail that I made. (laughs) All right. Well, we've got one more thing to say, and then we will get into cocktail time. The one more thing to say is simply that the episode ends with the revelation that Mud indeed has Crit's cudgel, which I have to say does look like a serious business melee weapon. That seemed something like straight out of World of Warcraft or something to me. It wasn't what I was expecting the cudgel to look like. And I will say that although I was very interested in this business with taxation, I'm actually much more interested in learning more about the the use, the existence of sacred cudgels in Telluride <laughs> culture. I want an episode about that. Right? It's like the new Batleth. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. It's not nearly as elegant, and I think I would rather have a Batleth, but uh, I'm getting into getting real interested in Tellarites here, so I do hope we get more about them <laughs> soon. It's all just trying to sell us <laughs> on the whole plot of season two, which is cudgels. Well, now that you have already teased it, Valerie, let's uh, let's talk about the cocktail that you have made. There, there really wasn't any other choice. I mean, the episode nearly ends with a thousand muds repeating sipping jippers on the beach. I was inspired, obviously, by the fact that this is something one might sip on the beach. Um, so already I'm thinking a drink that's quite alcoholic but doesn't taste like it at all because to me that's a beach drink. Oh, yeah. You just want to kind of slip the alcohol in there kind of behind as many citrus fruits and other types of sugar you can find. And then I was also very fortunate to find an interview with Rain Wilson where he is asked for his jipper recipe. Really? And so I uh, I had an additional amount of inspiration for the cocktail. So his response, and this is from an article published on space.com, and he says, Jippers are quite simple. It's a lotus fruit flash frozen along with the blood of a flea box. The editor notes that they don't know what this is, and I don't either. And just a hint of lime, as well as 100 proof grain alcohol. And so what I actually did is I also went back, Glenn, to your cocktail for magic to make the sanest man go mad. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And as I recall, I was playing around with a variation of the the Vesper Martini, but sort of a, a mint variation of that in which I, I used the uh, Tempest Fugit creme de menthe because of the uh, the time travel business, the time travel shenanigans in that episode. So have you used then some mint in this cocktail? No, what I actually did is I used your magic to make the sanest man go mad um, main base spirits as my inspiration. And you used a mix of gin and vodka. And if you're trying to get drunk on a beach, I think a, a mix mix of gin and vodka will do. All right. So so what are you mixing into this? So what I've actually done is included equal parts. Now, this drink is easily doubled or divided in half. I'm going to give the biggest version of it as a beach drink tends to be quite a lot. But I did equal parts gin and vodka, so an ounce of each, with an ounce of lychee or lychee, depending on how you say it, nectar. So, you know, I couldn't find any lotus fruit flash frozen. Um, But I was thinking of where the lotus grows um, and beachy tropical fruits, and that kind of led me to Vietnam. So that's why I picked the lychee nectar there to give it that kind of tropical lotus-y feel. Um, So that's one ounce of each of those three things. Then a half an ounce of lime juice. That's easy. He gave it to me, lime. And I could not find the blood of a flea blocks, but I did have some quite beautiful purpley red creme de cassis, which is a nice play on the creme de menthe that you put in the original cocktail. So two teaspoons of creme de cassis to give that bloodiness. And the best part of this drink is it's hideous. It is the most disgusting color 
brown gray, um, which I think just fits perfectly with the name Mud. Yeah, that's a brilliant drink. Sounds absolutely delicious. Seems perfect for Mud. And I, I think is exactly what he would be sipping on the beach, or hopefully will be sipping on the beach someday when he when he makes his fortune selling androids for his own ransom or his own bounty. Well, now that we are looking ahead to sipping our own jippers on the beach, I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. And you can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. Come on over to the Clay Temple forums and uh, let us know what you thought of that line about taxation. And uh, let us know if you came up with a uh, jipper recipe of your own. Yeah. And to that point, we are going to be putting the Short Trek cocktail recipes up on the forum in the cocktail thread again soon as we amp up for season two's premiere on the 17th. It's so soon. Yeah, it's just it's two weeks away. I mean, that um, is really exciting. It's kind of kind of kind of snuck up on us. But I'm I'm real excited to get back to the, the main show here. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot to talk about, be upset about, be happy about. I'm actually genuinely excited and I can't wait to, you know, go on that journey with you, Glenn, and with our listeners and to start up again. So for all those listening, I look forward to talking to you again soon. And until then, stay spacey.